0: This episode is brought to you by Toddle. Toddle is a teacher-built, AI-powered platform that's more than a learning management system. The founders of Toddle are former teachers who realized their workflow was broken as they struggled between systems that didn't talk to each other. So they created Toddle, a teaching and learning platform for K-12 progressive schools. Toddle goes beyond a typical LMS— streamlining all aspects of teaching from curriculum planning and mapping to assessments and gradebook, to progress reports and family communication. This includes standards and competency-based learning, student portfolios, project-based learning, and much more. So if you're looking for a new platform or want to stay ahead of the curve and want the best tools for your teachers, check out Toddle. We've linked to their website in the show notes. Their team is very responsive. And if they ask, tell them Atlas sent you. Welcome to Talking Technology with Atlas, the show that plugs you into the important topics and trends for technology leaders, all through a unique independent school lens. We'll hear stories from technology directors and other special guests from the independent school community and provide you with focused learning and deep dive topics. And now please welcome your host, Christina Llewellyn.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talking Technology with Atlas. I'm Christina Luella, the Executive Director of Atlas.
2: I'm Hiram Cuevas from St.
3: Christopher's School in Richmond, Virginia. And I am Bill Stites, Director of Technology at Montclair Kimberly Academy in Montclair, New Jersey.
1: Gentlemen, welcome back. My co-host. We're getting the hang of this, aren't we, guys? I mean, like, other than Bill's got a little bit of the fall cold situation going on, so you're sounding kind of bassy, but are we getting this under our belts? Are we getting better?
3: I think so. I've got like the Barry White thing going on right now, which is, uh, you know.
1: Do not sing. Do not sing. I will edit you. I will pull it out.
3: No, there's no singing. There's no singing. That I can guarantee.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hiram, are you going to sing for us today? I don't think it would Barry White if you did.
3: I think it will just say,
2: let's get it on.
1: (laughs) Okay, that I can handle. But I have editing power on this thing. So I'm excited to be back. I think that there's been a lot of attention lately around AI. We've had a lot of those conversations, even on this podcast. But what's really critical is because that's the bright and shiny that a lot of schools are talking about. And hey, I'm not ever going to complain when administrators at independent schools are talking technology, right? Like, if they're paying attention to some kind of technology issue, that's never a bad thing. But AI is getting a lot of attention. It's in the spotlight right now. And we're talking a little bit less about cybersecurity. And yet, cybersecurity continues to be such a massive part of the work that we're all doing and the, the demons that we wrestle at our schools. Before we welcome our guest today, this person has a ton of expertise in this area. Bill and Hiram, what's in y'all's world in terms of cybersecurity right now? What are you guys talking about and thinking about at your schools?
2: I tell you, there isn't a day that goes by where we're not discussing cybersecurity issues. It may not be something that goes out on a daily email, but it is certainly something that our school within our department and within the business office, when we're talking about cyber renewals and other subscription services, we are constantly discussing You know, what are the ramifications to cybersecurity and the safety of our constituents.
3: I think the one thing I would add to that is We're talking about it, even though we're not talking about it, in that you're always addressing things that relate in terms of, you know, what new service are we bringing on? Who's going to have access to it? What type of data are we storing in it? What is it connecting with? How is it connecting with these things? All of these things are the pieces that get talked about, but might not necessarily be known as the types of things that are getting labeled as cybersecurity, but they all fall into that category. And that's one of the things we're trying to get people more familiar with and accustomed to here in terms of the conversations.
1: That's awesome. I, and I think it leads us really well into our guest today. So let's bring on our guest to today's talk in technology with Atlas, Mark Orchinson. Welcome and hello. How are you? I'm going to let you introduce yourself, but you are kind of our cyber guru so far on the podcast. So welcome.
4: Thank you. I'm very good. It's a pleasure to be here today talking a bit about cybersecurity a bit about the changes in law a bit about the risks that are facing our schools globally you know we work with schools not only in north america but in most countries around the world so we have a sort of very good footprint of intelligence about what's really happening in the world
1: so tell us a little bit about who you are and where the heck you came from because in the independent school we tend to kind of know each other right and the same names and the same companies but here comes mark and i met you about I guess a year ago, a little somewhere in there, at like a gathering of leaders in the independent school associations and accreditation body community. And so that's how you and I met. But at first, even I was like, and I'm fairly new to this scene, but for me to go, who's this guy?
4: Who's this Brit, right?
1: <laughs> who's this Brit? So, can you tell our audience who in the heck this Brit is?
4: I'm based near London and I grew up in the countryside around England, you know, as you can imagine. Went to Hogwarts, that sort of thing.
1: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Hold on. If you're going to drop <laughs> that in the podcast, everyone's going to need to know your house. So, what house are you then if you went to Hogwarts? I'm
4: definitely Gryffindor.
1: Okay. I think we all want to be Gryffindor. So, we'll.
4: I think we all want to be Gryffindor through and through.
1: All right. Excellent. You may continue Gryffindor.
4: <laughs> Brilliant. So, I started my career within a company called Sun Microsystems you know, a lot of you will, will be familiar with that organization or that business that's now was acquired by Oracle. And within Sun, I worked in one of two R&D units that are outside of North America. So we had one in Grenoble in France and one in Bracknell in the UK near near Reading, which is maybe 20 minutes from Heathrow. So it's quite central as a hub. And essentially my role in in that organization was a product manager on what's called one and two U servers. So we were in high volume servers that were competing with the HPDL 360, HPDL 380, if you're familiar with those products. Actually, Sun came up with the first rack-mounted servers, and I was working for Sunfire V100, V120, an extra suite of servers. And my role within that organization was to work with the engineering side of the business, but also work with customers to then develop and bring to market you know, more technically capable servers that actually were competing with Wintel, Wintel units from HP and Dell. Now going back into the late nineties, Sun as an organization was flying when it came to servers, they brought to market leading edge servers. But then essentially when I joined, you had Dell and HP who had commoditized the product offering with a Wintel windows in Intel offering that essentially were far more competitive on price than a, a Sun box, but a Sun box itself, engineering-wise, is based on Unix, far more secure than a Windows-based machine. So from having that expertise, I then went into management consulting, supporting a whole range of different organizations, from education in schools to universities, to becoming the program leader for technology on Terminal 5. If any of you fly into Heathrow Terminal 5, then think about that as a piece of an infrastructure project. I was responsible for 300 people Implementing the technology from a, from a, the fifty four server rooms in that building to the flight information display screens, and also I then worked on a with a global data center business to streamline the operations around how their data centers would work before then deciding to start online. And I know that's sort of like a long winded introduction to me, but from a technology background, we very much R and D engineering. And then sort of the business application in the three to starting nine, which is my business and how we support schools now with technology.
1: So it's interesting because you it sounds like you have had through your career that very interesting mix of being able to speak technology, but also speak end user. And that's something that I know is sometimes tough, even in the independent school setting for our technology leaders to talk tech, but also make sure that you're doing so in a way that makes sense to people who are not tech people.
4: Yeah, very much so. Like, I think I've got a strong discipline in how technology goes together at an architectural level. And because of my early career within consultancy, you know, consultancy is a people business. To be successful as a management consultant, you have to be likable. You have to be able to communicate well in terms of understanding the client's problem, but also solving that client's problem. And solving that client's problem means we're dealing with inherently technical individuals that essentially need things in a more binary you know, need to be articulated in a more binary way so that they can go and do their engineering. And I'm sort of that middle guy in between to make that work as an individual, not only have built a tech consultancy business, but we have 65 developers and a cybersecurity team. So in the past three or four years, I've had to, had to learn not only the infrastructure, but also how software comes together, which is far more complex than actually, you know, infrastructure, I want to talk about switches, servers, and the cloud. So... Yeah, all those sort of skills have sort of been packaged together and that's sort of what I do and who I am now.
1: That's really great. And to help everyone understand the groundwork of this conversation or the foundation of this conversation, it's worth mentioning that Atlas has recently partnered with you with your company, Nine, and the idea that we were looking for, the problem that we were trying to solve when you dropped into our world a year or so ago, is that we had been offering for some time sort of well, we refer to it as cybersecurity 101. It's like kind of starting the conversation around putting together a team at your school, making sure that you're addressing the correct questions pertaining to cyber and student data privacy. The workshop is really useful and it's a great place for schools to start if they just literally are kind of like the head in the sand. You know, they just really aren't attacking this proactively. Or if there's been an issue at their school, if there's been some kind of a breach. And so what we needed next is we needed a deeper dive. And yeah, each school's a little bit different. Each set of systems is a little bit different. So we were really struggling with how to provide our members and our community with a deeper dive. In comes Mark, right? So then you come along and we start to get to know your product. I don't wanna go too deep into it. I think that that leaves a little air of mystery because your company, as I've come to understand it, is that there's the consulting side. There's also a software side that helps schools manage all of this. But if you could tell us a little bit about the CyberTech Academy program. You know, you were already doing this program. Atlas teamed up with you to offer it to our members. And by the time this podcast hits the street, we'll have, you know, a good number of our Atlas community schools in the mix of this program. So can you tell us just a little bit about that cohort style approach and why you stood it up to begin with? Like it pre-existed us knowing you. So where did it come from?
4: One of the things that we found with working with you know, hundreds of schools globally is that like, tech directors have a problem when it comes to finding professional learning opportunities, also professional learning opportunities that solve real-world problems in education. So you can go on an MCSE, you can go on an S C N A, you, know, SCCNA, you can go on various sort of engineering-driven training courses. But actually, the application back into the real world of schools is missing. And the training programs are very much theoretical. So very theoretical, built around specific equipment or specific solutions. And quite often, when a school invites us in to help them, we are generally doing the same thing, but with a consultant leading the way and communicating a process that we have delivered in-house to solve specific technical problems. And what we thought is that whilst that's very useful for schools that can afford to buy in a consultant to help them with those specific problems, it's not really advancing the wider community of tech leadership within schools. It's not really helping the wider community of schools that actually can't afford to have that expertise delivered through a consultant. So we came up with the idea of really packaging up what we would typically deliver as a consultant going into a school on specific areas. And specifically with the Tech Academy, it's focused on implementing a zero-trust architecture, which is all around cybersecurity and cyber defenses. And we have therefore packaged up our intellectual property of how we do things based around specific engineering challenges when it comes to zero-trust architecture and turned that into a workshop and a workshop that covers off the theory. So what is the theory behind specific technical components of a zero-trust architecture then goes into... And small teams working together virtually. So if we've got 50 people as part of the Tech Academy, you would be split up into 10 teams of five, for example, who would then solve or do games-based learning around that specific topic. So the theory is then brought to life through some sort of games-based learning activity for 20 minutes. And then maybe two of those 20-minute activities to really help embed the learning within a real-life example within a school and then you've got actually the next step is okay, if I want to take this theory and this concept that I've just learned about that actually really I understand now because I've listened to it, I've sort of gamified it, and I had a workshop with four or five people. And then you have a task driven exercise of okay, well, to put this into my school, we need to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, 10, 11, 12, all the tasks that need to be completed. But also supported with the design documents and the design architecture that you can then easily follow to plan and implement a zero trust architecture within your school. So essentially where it came from was what, first of all, there isn't any properly accessible, affordable, relevant professional development and education that we've seen and specifically in the UK or British and American curriculum schools that are around the world. And we sort of have the answer to it because we are selling that on a one-to-one basis all the time. So let's just package it up. And deliver it in a way that's far more accessible. And any school, and essentially, you know, with Atlas, I think it's a great vehicle to really support your community with PD.
1: I love this. So you're you're saying I've, the idea of like, okay, so we know what we need to do in theory, but the practical application is really what the Tech Academy offers. Let me turn to Bill and Hiram. I mean does that seem to resonate with you? Like you go, you learn something and you get it conceptually, but then actually like boots on the ground, getting it done at your schools, that can't always be very easy. So having the solution seems pretty interesting. Let me toss to you guys. Do you have any questions?
3: One of the things that we focused on here is what we refer to as like the low hanging fruit. What are the things that you can pick off pretty easily? You know, whether that's MFA, you know, enabling that in the school or running your fishing exercises, so on and so forth. And when you start talking about things like zero trust, you know, not sure everyone understands actually even what zero trust means and how that might look in a school. But, you know, Hiram and I and others that may have heard that term or been involved with that term, going that step beyond, you know, like climbing higher up the tree to get, you know, those pieces that are a little bit harder. How do you see the work that you're doing helping people like myself you mentioned you know you've got the sun background my background is in early childhood education i thought i was going to be a third grade school teacher my entire life so the low hanging fruit was really easy how do you see getting people to that next step to implementing zero trust to understanding zero trust to getting through those things in those programs how does that look
4: it's very much designed for you know tech directors because For each of the individual modules, you've not only got the framework of, from an engineering perspective, what you need to do, you've then got the directional learning of actually how you do it. Also, we provide a timeline of actually the amount of time it's going to take to implement each of those projects. So for example, on network switching audit and best practice, for every task associated with that specific module, we have estimated the amount of the project and engineering time it takes to implement each of those individual steps. So from your perspective as a tech director, looking at that program of work, because actually it's broken down on a task-by-task basis within the nine governance software. It says, you know, to deliver this project, these are all the tasks that need to be completed. You go into a task, there's a description, there's a checklist, and then there's a resource and an estimated amount of time. So for you as a tech director, you can review every single task and you can then conceptually, through going to all the tasks, understand that complete program of work. What is the engineering going to be required to improve our security on our network switching? But also, what is the benefit of doing so? So what is the organizational benefit? What is the amount of time that is required? Do we have the skills in-house, yes or no, to do this? And generally speaking, you should have the skills in-house to do that because the team who are on the training course will have learnt those skills on the module. We even go down to the level of when you're implementing, for example, access control lists. That's the second one. We give you the scripts that typically you would write when you are coding a switch, for example, on the control prompt. So you're going into that level of detail of the theory all the way through to the design all the way through to the technical implementation. So for you as a tech director, it should give you confidence in A, actually, what are the steps that we need to be taking to secure our network from a successful cyber attack? B, oh, actually, I understand the scope of each of those projects. I understand what it means, and I understand its relationships to zero-trust architecture. C, I can evaluate whether we actually do have the engineering skills in-house to deliver this. And then D, do we have the amount of time available to deliver this module at an engineering perspective within our school? And if we don't have it during the academic year, Do we have it in the holiday periods when the kids are out? So it gives you that intelligence. And furthermore, it gives you the ability, again, at a project and task level to review that with leadership. Now, if leadership wants a more secure school, then typically to do that, you need to have resources and time to implement those technical projects. You need to turn things off, to update them and to do certain things. And I think what we've delivered and for those going on the Tech Academy, it actually gives you... A lot of levers and a lot of discussion points to have with leadership about what are the consequences of we want our school to be more secure from cyber attack. Okay, well, there's these nine projects that we have to do, and this is how we're going to do it. This is how much time it's going to take. These are the skills we need or that we either have, we need, or we need to acquire.
2: Mark, I love the fact that you actually talked about the levels because Bill mentioned the low-hanging fruit, and then you intentionally talked about these levels and talking about peeling back the onion, essentially. Of getting more secure. I do have a question because I know Bill and I've had this conversation between us and also with other tech directors. I find that within the industry for cyber insurance, not all of the cyber insurance recommendations are created equal. And Do you have a sense for where these policies are going with the K-12 industry? I still feel like they have a, a very corporate slant to them. I'm curious if they're really understanding
4: what the K-12 environment is all about. So if we look at the insurance industry when it comes to cyber, there's a story to tell. So prior to the pandemic, it was very, very interesting that the premiums that you'd pay for your cyber insurance were really low, like incredibly low. Cyber insurance was a booming industry and certainly a booming product amongst money insurers and we were working with Hiscox, they're one of the global biggest providers, about the pricing of cyber risk when it comes to education, and actually how they could use the data that we have to better price the price risk for cyber insurance when it comes to education. With the pandemic, you had a significant increase in the number of cyber attacks affecting education. And if we look at our data prior to the pandemic, and you can use the Microsoft malware threat tracker which is a good point of reference for this prior to the pandemic, education was like in the low teens as an industry that was affected by malware. About September 2020, education was 60% of total malware encounters across all industries. And then about January, February 2021, we're talking 80%. And education has been consistently 80% of malware encounters since that point in time. Now, on the risk profile side, what you saw with insurers is that they totally underpriced the volume of cyber attacks that were facing education and they've had a, a huge amount of money that they've had to pay out because they essentially said look you have a cyber attack we'll pay for everything we'll bring in a pr agency to manage the communications with your community we'll pay for tech specialists to come and rebuild your systems we'll pay for forensics to understand the root in and we'll pay for damages in terms of lost income associated with that so with that happening you suddenly saw a complete change of tactic from insurers, where it was how many blockers can we put into play to actually reduce our liability when it comes to the risks that we've sold. So they've sold all of the cyber packages, but actually that won't cover their liability in terms of those risks. So the easiest thing for them to jump on is actually, let's jump on a corporate approach to IT systems and services. When it comes to actually what our expectations are. Because if we have that as the expectation and it's and, and a belt and braces approach, then actually we are protecting our liability, we are protecting our margins, and we're reducing our risk profile. And that is what you have seen specifically within the industry. And more than that, there is then the, you know, we are now seeing within policies that whilst they may, you know, underwrite your risk for cyber at this moment in time, subject to you evidencing that you have certain protections in place that you actually have to have some form of evidence and accountability about how you are continuing to manage your cyber risk. So it's not just a point of time of, okay, yes, we can demonstrate our level of risk is and we have these cyber protections, but how are you testing as an organization that those protections remain in place during the course of the 12 months of that insurance policy? Now, one of the reasons for that is that Let's say when you first install all of your IT systems, so your, your devices, your network, you have your cloud systems, and when you first install them, they are all joined together. So they're, they're all joined together. And from a security perspective, they all touch each other at a single point. So you know, end to end, that actually there are no air gaps in our systems because they are all joined from A through to Z, and all the way through, we can see the security. Now... Over time, over the course of a 12 month period, each of those systems has an update. Laptops get updates all the time, the Microsoft uh, Mac get updates, iPads get updates, your network switches get updates, your firewall gets an update, even Google will get an update and Office 365. And over the course of the year, air gaps are generated between each of those individual systems. So a security air gap is created, and that is a vulnerability. And essentially what the expectation is when it comes to insurance is that you as a school, as your systems get updated throughout the course of the year, you can manage those air gaps, you can manage those vulnerabilities, because it's those vulnerabilities, those air gaps that are created that allow an attacker to circumnavigate or through snakes and ladders their way through your IT systems and services. And that's how, in many cases, a successful attack occurs so going back to your point here, hopefully there's a long-winded explanation of actually the context behind insurers, how they have seen you know, their, their reduction in profit and also you know, specific losses when it comes to underwriting insurance, but also the expectations now underwriting at this moment in time, but how an insurer is going to get out of paying a cyber claim is by asking for the evidence of how you've continually managed your systems. And if you can't provide the evidence then it's likely that the insurance policy will allow them to not pay out on that claim.
1: We've been saying for a while that cyber insurance is like the Wild West of insurance because of all these issues that you're bringing up, Mark. So that's really interesting. Let me put a finer point on it and let's move a little bit into student data privacy because in the States, as you well know, we're coming along on our obligations in terms of protecting privacy, but we're certainly not you know, where some other countries are in terms of the global scene. I'd love you to just reflect on that, given that you have this international perspective and experience. If we haven't gotten there, we're getting there maybe, or we're about to get there. But in any event, there's even, if not a legislative or a law-based reason for us to protect data for our students and our communities. Certainly, there's an ethical, maybe a moral obligation for us to do it. And if nothing else, it's a PR nightmare if these things happen. So I'd love you to touch on that because I think that many of our schools are just ignoring this altogether, depending on what state they live in. But as I talk to different audiences, I refer to the student data privacy issue as a tsunami that is sneaking up on us tell us a little bit about what you're seeing and what schools need to be thinking about
4: so if we think at the moment where the US is so the US is an outlier when it comes to the protection of personal data you know we're looking against most other countries globally around the world and the reason for this is a regulation called the gdpr the general data protection regulation that was brought into play in Europe in 2018 and it was actually announced in 2016 so it was announced in 2016 with you know, By 2018, you have to be compliant with all these things when it comes to data protection. And if you're not compliant, then there are fines. There are fines of 4% of turnover or 20 million euros, whatever is highest, right? So I think TikTok have recently been fined 300 million euros by the EU for non-compliance with data protection law. Now, prior to 2018, as an organization, you still had to protect personal data. There was a moral obligation. But generally speaking, in most countries, there was some form of data protection law, specifically within the EU. And beyond 2018, it was a stick. There's now a stick. If you do not do this, you're going to be fined. And then you've got other countries like Singapore and in Saudi and in China that go a step further and go, well, you're not only going to get fined, but we'll throw you in jail. So like in Singapore, if you're like the head of admissions of an international school or an American international school and you're not protecting personal data in your area, you yourself can go to jail. That is how many countries have been dealing with this. And the motivations for this is because in many instances, the law, when it comes down to technology, and specifically when it comes down to data, hasn't been catching up with actually how technology is developing. So the EU specifically, if we look at the geopolitics of where this law came about, was looking at US tech firms and going, hang on a sec, you have all these US tech firms harvesting all this personal data about Europeans making tons of cash off the back of it. And that is not competitive in allowing EU tech firms to flourish. Therefore, we're going to bring everyone on a level playing field. So it's as simple as that. And then what the EU then smartly said is they said, well, if you're a country outside of the EU and you want to trade with us, yeah, you want some consumer business, you want to sell us cars, then you're going to have to have a data protection law that is as adequate as our data protection law. Otherwise, when you know, you're know you not coming in, you're not into the ring. So you've had this tidal wave around the world of the, of the changes in data protection law. Now, in the US, there is no federal law around data protection. And at a state level, you have had specific states going, well, this is really, really important. Yeah, actually, we completely agree with the Europeans and everyone else that actually, we, we, you know, we want to understand that if a company is taking our data online, and then using that to influence our behavior by showing us ads, Yeah, we want to have a say-so. We want to say we want to either do it, accept that we want to be influenced by that, or we want to reject it. Likewise, for our children, we want to understand that if our kids go to school and they are using all these EdTech apps, that in many cases are free, that actually there are protections in place around how that data is used to influence our child when they log on the Xbox in the evening and play a game and then adverts come up to try to influence their behavior. Because in many cases, that is what has been happening. Technology is generated on students whilst they're at school, that is aggregated through their browser and through specific identity uh, identifiers around who they are. They then log on from an IP address at home, in many cases the same device, or with similar accounts because they may have an app account on their iPad that's also associated with their Xbox. And consequently, all that data can be aggregated by an algorithm to then seeking to influence their behavior.
1: So free is never free.
4: Free is never free. Free is always to harvest your data to sell it to someone else. And in many cases, you don't know where it's going, right? But you know that you're being influenced.
3: That's one of the hardest things, I think, that we deal with in schools because one of the things that came out of COVID was this wild west of these proliferation of free apps and, you know, teachers needing to be nimble and being able to meet students where they are and to address the hardships that COVID put upon for us trying to teach. But I think it was that free nature that is now where we as schools are trying to rein all of that back in and kind of get things under control because I don't think we understand that, you know, those that are listening to the podcast, those, you know, that are in this, we understand that exactly nothing is free in this world what you're giving up is that data. The data is the commodity that you're using to pay for this, but trying to get and communicate that clearly to our faculties who are working with the students and making the students understand these things is the hurdle that we have to overcome. And one of the things I'm curious about from your perspective is how do you see helping with that? Is there anything in what you're doing or what you're seeing or how you're talking to schools about the education that needs to happen around that idea of free is not free, this all comes at a cost, and these are the things that you need to look out for and be aware of.
4: There are a number of different levels there. So we have a thing called vendor management. It's a tech solution that has pre-qualified vendors around their terms and conditions and what they are doing with data. It's like the Netflix of EdTech vendors that you can have. But to want to use that, then you need to be motivated to evaluate the vendors that you are using. So what you have seen from a legal structure within the US is individual states, rather than doing the whole data protection pie and doing it all like a big GDPR, they're doing a little slice of pie to actually start forcing through organizations in law to undertake certain things when it comes to the evaluations of vendors, when it comes to their data and cybersecurity. And Christina referenced those 11 states, California, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Iowa, Montana, Oregon, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, all of those states have brought in specific vendor laws that require you as a school to understand where your data is going when you contract with a vendor. Now importantly, Bill, many schools, you know, these freemium vendors, right, I've downloaded the app and I pressed to go, yeah, and teachers are now using it. That's many cases and there's no documentation of actually what that teachers done or what the terms of contract are between both parties. And what these laws are, are saying in these 11 states is that that can no longer happen. You can't just have a teacher going by a free app and agreeing to those terms of service because from a risk profile, the organization is accepting the legal risk of that transaction taking place. And importantly, the organization being the school is then liable for what's happening with that data. Now, if you're a head of school, or you're the superintendent or whoever you are, you being the head of that organization are ultimately accountable and liable for the decisions when it comes to the contracts that are being made. So you want to get a grip on that because in certainly within those 11 states, then your organization has had to go through in law an evaluation of those vendors when it comes to what is the personal data that's being collected, where is it going, what is it being used for, who is it being shared with, how is it being secured? And legally, what protections are in place that that vendor is offering the school that that data will be protected from a cybersecurity breach?
1: You just sent heads like through the roof, right? So your, your point is that heads of school ultimately responsible for contracts. So they can wrap their heads around this from the perspective of the new dining hall vendor or school uniform provider, like that's a contract or a lease or, or whatever it is but if a teacher or even a tech director is click click clicking through the okay okay acknowledge acknowledge you now have a contract where no money's being exchanged but like we said free not free it's data being exchanged and the heads are ultimately responsible that's heavy right so even if heads are not listening to this and tracking that certainly tech directors like Hiram you you're in Virginia Are you freaking out about this, that you're basically clicking and now your head of school is responsible for the data of the kids at your school?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, And one of the things that I think tech directors are also experiencing are the changes to the terms of service that are happening frequently. Google, for example, is updating their terms of service in a variety of their applications. So Photos has now been pushed to 18 and over as an example, BARD is 18 and over. So there are certain areas within your workspace that you have to actually sign off and claim to Google that you have uh, made them aware that you are an environment where it's 18 and over for certain OU or organizational units within the workspace. If For those of you who are looking for a great example to show your faculty and staff, if you've ever watched Jane is Awful on Netflix, they have a terms of service Component, it's about two minutes in length. And the character essentially is saying, I never saw this. And the attorney says, Yeah, I've never done it until I printed it out. And she prints out the terms of service and it's this huge stack. And she was like, Yeah, you just scroll through your phone and you agreed to it.
3: One of the other things that I think comes up with this, though, is this rapid clicking and, you know, having to realize all of these things where others might not, is I think you have to have the ability and feel like you can say no to certain things. And I think that's often the hard part in terms of what you're dealing with. I was recently in a discussion with a vendor who we were trying to figure out how we could send data over to them to integrate with them. And it was going to be through an API connection. And they said, yeah, we just need access to all of the scopes in your API. So they needed access to every piece of data via our API. And I was working with a group in our school to kind of push this through. And I said, I can't agree to this. They're asking for way too much than they actually need to do what it is that they're doing. The vendor's response was, well, we asked for in the event that we have to pull data for other things. And I put my hands on and I said, there's no way I'm going to give you this because I don't know what you're taking. I don't know what you're doing with it. I don't know how you're storing it. I'm willing to give you X to allow you to accomplish Y, but I'm not giving you the whole thing. And it was good because it was an excellent exercise for us as a school to understand what our steps were going to be internally if we weren't willing to give a company what they were asking for. And we saw a need for using the service that the company provided. What were our steps going to be to work around that? Or what direction were we then going to pivot to? What was really great about it was the vendor acknowledged that you're right. You know, we're asking for too much. Let's figure out how to pare that down. But if you don't feel that you are empowered as a tech director to say no, because you've got pressures coming at you from other other ways, it's a sticky place to be in. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about before in terms of how do we educate the whole on what all of these risks are so that they understand the reasons for a no and what you're willing to do to get to yes. But how do you work through all those things?
1: Let's stop down on that for just a second. Let me play through that. This is a good example, Bill. Mark, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but like if Bill had signed that and just decided I'm not fighting this fight, the directive is coming from the head, we need this software. If Bill had agreed to just say, whole hog, sure, go ahead, API the heck out of this, you can have all my data, where then does the liability and the responsibility lie? Is it the school's problem? Is it the vendor? Who protects the data at that point?
4: Yeah. So it depends what's in the contract that Bill has agreed to between the the provider. Ultimately, let's say the worst case happens. The supplier, that vendor, has a cyber attack and all this data is exposed. So you can go on a where web Vice like society, for example, and you can see when they have attacked the school or school district who hasn't paid at the ransom, they put all the data online. So let's say in this instance, the vendor that Bill has agreed to downloads all this data, they have a cyber attack, and all that information is published online. The students in that school, certainly from litigation perspectives and their parents in that school, if their data was published online certainly would have claims against the school for damages and could sue the school. And the school in that case would have limited defense because they wouldn't be able to say that there was a signed contract or there was. they wouldn't be able to say there's a due diligence process, first of all. How do you sign contracts for sharing personal data? Oh, we don't. We allow everyone, anyone to do it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're going to be sued. You have no defense in that case. The second scenario is you have a due diligence process, but you're not checking the obligations of the vendor back to the school. So do you remember there was a, I think in 21, there was a breach with Blackboard? So that affected schools globally and, and many schools who were under the provision of the GDPR. And when those schools looked at their contracts with Blackboard, there were no provisions where Blackboard needed to help the school in terms of identifying which people had lost their data. So consequently, in law, those schools were in breach of their respective data protection obligations, and they had to notify the regulator in their respective country that they are in breach of the law because they have not checked the contract. So in all cases, it is going to come back to the school because the school is the person that's sharing the data, and the providers is going, hey, you're giving me the data. Yeah, we don't really care about how you check us, right? Right. A vendor trying to make their contractual terms less onerous on them. So that the risk is owned by the school. That's part of a commercial negotiation. In Europe and in Canada now, the changes in law make that basically illegal. If you are a vendor, you need to have these provisions in your contract that make you as responsible and that you have a responsibility back to the organization who's sharing that personal data. However, the school itself, the organization needs to have a due diligence process for evaluating the vendors and they need to understand what is right and what is wrong. So they ultimately still need to make the decision. And importantly, and my last point is the organization who's sharing, so the school in this case, needs to only share the minimal data set. Yeah, If you're sharing more than is required, then that's a problem. And I think what you're going to see, you're going to see certainly more vendor supply chain attacks in education. And you're going to have parents and children going, can you explain to me which vendors we have, who are you sharing my personal data with, and how have you evaluated them? Simple question. And you're going to see nine schools out of 10 going, don't know, can't give that information because you've not done it.
1: Right. And we're seeing that some of the public schools in the states, even though there's really not that connection and that law to support us the way that it exists in Canada and in the UK, you know, I think that we're seeing public schools start to do this and track this and vet vendors. But it's tricky. You know, independent schools, not only are the schools smaller than these big districts, but also our community is smaller. So we just don't have as much leverage. So when it comes to I'm hearing this a lot, Bill and Hiram, I know, are advocates for this issue. At the end of the day, schools still have to operate. Educators have to teach and our schools have to, you know, we have a business to run. And so we're kind of stuck, you know, without the protection of some of these laws where it does shift some of that onus to the vendors. We can do all the due diligence we want. But at the end of the day, we come back to that issue of teachers clicking OK, OK, OK without reading. And also we got to get stuff done we have to keep the wheels turning. And so where's the middle ground? You know, Bill has the kind of cachet, you know, like social capital to say, I'm not going to sign this. Like, we're not going to do this. But what about for a tech director that doesn't have that standing in their schools?
4: The contract review process to look at these vendors is really time consuming. I'm, I'm guessing you all know about that. And it's, it may take between two and four hours per vendor. And that's for us to do it, you know, when we're doing it and we've got a lot more expertise. So in solving this problem, we've created this vendor management solution. It's called Nine Vendor Management, and it has pre-qualified vendors in it. We review all the terms and conditions, and we have some weight, right? So when we write to these vendors, we say your contract or your privacy notice or your information security policy, whatever it is, has weaknesses in these areas, and it needs to be strengthened. Otherwise, on our platform, every school is going to see that actually you aren't someone that can be trusted. With personal data. However, you take all these steps and you do this couple of other things they have to do, then they're recognized. They get a certificate from Nine as taking a professional approach to data privacy in education. And they can use that as a way of communicating that they do take a professional approach. If they're on that program and any school has a problem with them when it comes to privacy and cybersecurity, the school can complain directly to us and then we'll take it up with that specific vendor to say it. Now, One thing that Atlas could do, now we've prioritized vendors that we generally know our schools use. In North America, maybe slightly different in terms of the types of vendors. But if Atlas, if you did a questionnaire of your top 30 EdTech applications that that are in each of our members' schools, right, we would do exactly the same process, go to each of those 30, do the terms and conditions, put them in our vendor management, The ones that are good will raise who are good. And the ones who are bad will go, don't use these guys because they're not participating. And I think the only way that you're going to change the mentality is one through a law, which is at a federal level and at a state level. But the primary driver is coming together and go, well, actually, you know, if there's I don't know how many independent schools there are in the US, a lot, but you can then start highlighting, Atlas can start highlighting the vendors that have passed the test which vendors are online and who hasn't. And that's the motivation that you're going to get vendors to want to play ball and, you know, take time away from the schools and do it. Because if, if a vendor could work with us to do their assessment and that goes out to 4,000 schools, 5,000 schools, that's 5,000 schools who aren't doing it themselves. It's just one person doing it.
1: Does checking vendors and keeping up with these regulations, is it made more challenging by the fact that it's, Generally, a state by state thing. Like we have some states that are, as you mentioned, you listed, they're already in the fray and trying to take care of this work and protect our, especially our youth or our consumers. And then other states are just not there yet. And we're, you know, we've got some political challenges in this country. So does it make it more tricky that the legislation and the regulation is, you know, that varies pretty significantly?
4: I think conceptually it's all fundamentally the same. And what we do is we focus on the highest level. So we focus on which state or which country has the highest level of protection or requirements when it comes to privacy. Because if you're a company, if you're Google, for example, and you want to compete globally, you have to compete in demonstrating that you are compliant with the gold standard. And typically the gold standard is the GDPR. Now in the US, when we're evaluating vendors, We know we work with a number of vendors in the US on their privacy programs. And generically speaking, state by state, that isn't a differential. And we are evaluating against the GDPR. The only additional requirements are around FERPA and HIPAA. And from experience, so long as we evaluate against our standard framework that we use within nine vendor, then that covers off all of those areas. HIPAA and FERPA are just an addition. The requirements are just in addition to what the gold standard is, so it doesn't necessarily fundamentally change. So on a state-by-state basis, we have a standard process that you would follow, and the, the requirements locally don't change.
1: One more question for you on this topic. If not a regulatory call to action... You actually, Mark, turned me into a student of this idea of the ethical obligation, and you pointed me toward, it's UNICEF, right? And they released a manifesto on our obligations as grown people to protect the littles. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Because even if you're living in a state that doesn't have the regulatory nudge, I have on occasion, spoken to independent school administrators and leaders and brought up this UNICEF call to action. And there's something there because I do think that as grown people making decisions, there is something to be said about protecting our littles until they can make decisions for themselves.
4: Yeah, completely. Like as adults, we can make our own decisions around where we want our data to go. And we can make decisions around our digital footprint. The ethical argument is obviously that children don't have that choice. We are making decisions for them. So if we're taking photos of them and publishing those photos on the internet, then we are allowing their images to be mapped by facial recognition technology that in the future when when they're an adult and they publish a photo online of them and their face is mapped again, that historically they'll be able to track back and see all these different photos of them that have been published on the internet and that in itself is a privacy implication we are making decisions around the technology that they use and in many cases that technology is seeking to influence their behavior so when it comes to edtech yes there is technology that is designed to enhance the learning experience of that child or enhance the learning velocity of that child but in, in other instances, the free ed tech out there may claim to be doing that, but actually the ed tech out there, the free ed tech out there is seeking to profile that child to use the data to influence their behavior in ways other than are uh, in the educational realm. So ethically, we schools should be taking accountability and responsibility for understanding that actually they are a key decision points in influencing how that child's digital footprint is going to grow and actually what there are controls that they can put into place that will minimize the detriment from a digital perspective of, of that, that technology now and in the future can have on the child and that is the ethical argument now yes if a teacher wants to use a piece of technology because it's really going to help their students to learn that is fantastic but what are the ethical what are the Safeguarding and child protection issues that is associated with that piece of technology. So, if you take Scratch, you guys may use Scratch. So, Scratch can be set up two ways. I don't know whether it's changed now. If you set up two ways, one where you as a child, you have your like Facebook type wall where you can put your projects on and share them with your community. Anyone who's a Scratch user can get access to that and can communicate with you. Or you can set it up a different way when it's locked down. That first way, also allows people who aren't necessarily children, who want to communicate with children, access to children within your school. Now, you may evaluate that piece of technology and go, well, actually, it's really important that the children can share their projects. But we're going to tell our children in our class that if anyone communicates with them who's not in their class or their school, to raise their hand and let a teacher know. Otherwise, you've got that risk of grooming associated with that piece of technology. Now, the question I pose to listeners and you guys is within your school, how many pieces of technology are there that allow individuals who aren't in your school to communicate with children in your school? And how are you managing that risk? Because if I was a parent sending my kid to your school, obviously me, I'm a you know, I do this day in, day out, I'm gonna ask you as a school, show me how are you managing these risks because you've got locks on the door and a gate and a security office and security guards to make sure it's not people coming into the school, but how are you digitally protecting my child from these digital risks? Do you even know what those digital risks are?
2: Yeah, Mark, that's it's a lot to take in. And it reminds me of a conversation that Bill and I had over 10 years ago at the Lausanne Laptop Institute. We were discussing his school's use of Evernote, and they were deploying Evernote to his students. And Bill, do you happen to recall what my very first question was
3: to you? It was, what are you doing about COPA compliance for your students? I looked at Hiram, or I think we were probably communicating over Twitter at the time, and I was like, what are you talking about? That was the birth of our friendship because it was really this thing where we both were interested in using certain tools looking at the ways in which those tools at those times were providing these level of connections that were beyond what we were currently doing in the schools but we're going to open potentially open things up beyond that not necessarily with evernote in particular in this case but was going to open these things up and it really began this journey for me which is what set me off on this path with what got me more connected with Hiram is how do we look at things like the copa laws that were in place to protect students And how do we manage those things around those choices? And that was really our deep dive into those privacy policies, those terms of service. Because again, not as stringent as what you've got with the GDPR pieces, but there were definitely some guidelines there that you needed to follow and figure those things out. So it makes for a set of guidelines to use to start, but definitely needs to be expanded upon.
4: Another interesting area is when I speak to school leaders is games-based learning in in edtech. So a lot of subjects have games because that is a tool that allows you to increase the learning velocity of that child or children by keeping them engaged through rewards and whatnot. But the design around edtech is around persuasive design. So the technology that is being used is designed to be persuasive and to encourage addiction so that the children use it and then progress through the learning hurdles or whatever is in in that particular game. But evidently, if a child comes into school and every lesson or three or four lessons of a day, they are playing games, the games-based learning, addictive design-based piece of technology, then evidently the school is contributing and if not amplifying addiction in technology, but without necessarily knowing that because someone's not necessarily looking at the aggregate use of that type of technology across the curriculum at a year group level. And specifically with countries that have brought in changes in data protection law, and obviously within the US, you've got the American Data Privacy and Protection Act that may or may not be coming down the line. And as an organization, you have to look at the aggregate impact of the decisions that you're making when it comes to the potential detriment of the sharing of personal data and the consequences. So games-based learning is like a big area that not only from a obviously a legal perspective, legal issue, but from an ethical, like a really important ethical area. Like if you are coaching children to be addicted to technology because you think it's going to advance their education or contribute towards their learning velocity so you can show the results back to the parents because they're paying these student fees, yet actually you are causing a lot of potential detriment to them is another ethical area that I think is doesn't necessarily get too much attention when it comes to the discussion around technology in schools.
1: If I can, Mark, I'd like to ask you, because some of these questions that you're bringing up are intertwined, right? There's the actual privacy and protection piece, but then there's the ethical questions. Is there a role for accreditation to play, do you think, in trying to address some of these big picture technology questions and ethical questions?
4: Yeah, 100%. I think in independent schools, accreditation is the starting point, I think, to influence the behavior of school leadership to pay attention to it. Because from my experience, I work with a lot of American curriculum schools globally, probably the leading American curriculum schools. And if it ain't in accreditation, regardless of whether it's in local law, it may not necessarily get the emphasis that is required. That's not to say that many school leaders aren't paying attention to the other things that are important. It just adds a different lens and a different spotlight to actually its importance. So the work that nine have been doing, we work with an organization called Icasia. and they essentially, Christina, I mean, correct me wrong, they are like, they accredit the accreditors or they accredit the leading accreditors, right? They do. Yep. The independent council are accrediting independent schools. There you go.
1: ICESA is basically looking at streamlining accreditation among accrediting bodies. So I think that it's cool that you're involved in those conversations because this is something that we're not seeing, you know, and Atlas pushes for it too. Atlas is definitely out there making sure that accrediting organizations understand that technology needs to be addressed. And if they're struggling with that, we can help.
4: Yeah. And Our role is to really help the accreditation commissions understand the implications of changes in law, understand the ethical arguments, and also understand that they are in pole position to really support their member schools in improving standards when it comes to cybersecurity, data privacy, technology. But they can also bring in the expertise and the resources like working with Atlas to really help their member schools move forward. So our role is to enable those conversations to happen and to increase the capability and capacity of an accreditation commission to understand what's important and where they can get resources to support their member schools. You know, We have a number of success stories. We have the Council of International Schools that we're working with. We've worked with Canadian accredited independent schools We've done some work with the Southern Association of Independent Schools, Connecticut. There's a whole range of different accreditation commissions that are moving down this journey. More conversations we can have with the accreditation commissions about why this is important. and I think member schools can ask their accreditation commission, how can you help us with cyber and privacy? Because through ICASIA, the accreditation commissions have an accountability to help them. It's a two-way relationship. So Acacia brought Nine in to help their accreditation commissions, but then the schools go to the accreditation commissions to help us with privacy and cybersecurity. The accreditation commissions automatically have a point of access through Nine and also through Atlas to get their support to build capability and capacity at the accreditation commission level. So if you're listening to this and need some help, speak to your accreditation commission, mention Nine and Atlas, and then suddenly there'll be a a PD program about it.
1: I knew there was a reason that we brought you on this podcast.
4: (laughs) Yeah, So, Mark, I'm
2: eternally grateful for that because I know this brings it to the forefront then for particular members of our administrative bodies, you know, the heads of school and the CFOs, once they see the level of importance of it being part of an accreditation visit, they will put this towards the forefront and actually probably pay closer attention to the tech directors that have been talking about this for quite some time, and it just hasn't gotten that traction that it needed to have. And I think this is going to be really, really helpful for tech directors.
1: So as we start to wrap this up, this is not going to be an easy final question. The question is this, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, and it's easy to see why, even in the course of this podcast, why technology leaders can feel really overwhelmed in this work. Because they probably feel really alone in this work for exactly the reason that Hiram just mentioned. If a school leader is listening to this and wants to start somewhere, anywhere, what are those low-hanging fruit items that Bill mentioned at the top of our discussion? Where do they start? Because it seems like a really big job for just one person at a school to be responsible for. And what we advocate, of course, is that it's not one person's job. But what do you say when a school comes to you and says, I'm just really overwhelmed, or we're just overwhelmed, where do we even begin?
4: Yeah, it's a great but very difficult question. I think as a tech leader and you start investigating these issues, it's like opening up a fire hydrant, right? There's like a massive jet of water of loads of information, information overload of the topic. And then supporting that is you have... Lots of organizations with a corporate agenda giving you their spin on where to start because it links to selling their products and services. But saying that, you know, I think that a good way to start specifically on on a technical. So let's say we're talking about cybersecurity, there's no better start than doing the tech academy at a practitioner level because that is practical how to do stuff and make us more secure. On a data privacy side, it's slightly more complicated and may require a bit more of investment. So we have a data privacy program designed for US schools. That is you know, nine projects, 86 tasks of things that you need to go and look at. And that is available on a freemium level from about October 17th. So you can start on that using that program that gives you context. We also have a, like a, an 11 risk. What are the common cyber risks facing education based upon the two or 300 cyber vulnerabilities assessments that we're carrying out? Every single year, we identify what those risks. So it gives you a snapshot of where you are. Where I have seen things being successful within tech leaders is tech leaders at a regional level. And Atlas, you may be, you may be doing this, but having like a tech leaders forum where you come together for a specific afternoon to brainstorm these issues. So we're hosting one in the UAE with a an American squad actually, and part of that is. The starting question is how do we overcome these regulatory requirements when it comes to changes in law and privacy and cybersecurity when basically we don't have the skills and capacity to do so? So that is the opening question, right? And it's...
1: You know, just a little light starter question to get things rolling.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And that has been supported by a number of then case study schools who will then like get up to 20 minutes and say, this is what I'm doing. And then people going back into breakout sessions.
1: I mean, that's really the power of the Atlas community, absolutely. We we definitely are having these conversations nonstop. And it sounds like, you know, exactly what you're doing in your company is what we do in our organization, which is we try to tier the approach to this work, meaning like, okay, we know you can't do the fire hose all at once, start with level one. So the Atlas cybersecurity recommendations are tiered like that to give schools a chance to just kind of bite a little bit of the apple at a time and see some meaningful progress.
4: Yeah. It's quite simply on the cyber issues. As a school, you want to have a level of confidence that you are protected from most cyber threats. You're going to fix that through engineering of your school network on the, both devices and on the physical network. Get that done. You're safe and secure, generally speaking. And that's a tech academy. On the privacy side, evaluate your vendors. If you evaluate your vendors, you're soon going to understand the primary privacy risks associated with you as a school. And going, you know, using nine vendor management is one way of doing that. But by going through that exercise, you're going to be able to escalate or present to score leadership that actually these are some core risks that we are facing. And I think moving forward, Christina, some of the things that we'll be providing Atlas is, you know, these are the good vendors, these are, these are the bad vendors, right? And that's going to provoke some conversation. So I think the more that we can work together, the more you know, we support tech leaders who are members of Atlas.
1: Absolutely. Mark, we're so grateful for your time and expertise. We will absolutely let folks know in the show notes how to connect with you, how to learn more about your company. And I just want to thank you for your partnership with Atlas. I think that on rare occasions, we find someone in our vendor community that really understands the thought leadership work that we're trying to do. And while you're a relative new kid on the block, I don't think that you're gonna stay that way for very long. I know you're in very high demand as a speaker in our space and I can see why. So consider this a standing invite. We'd love to have you back to the podcast whenever you're available. And when these trends kind of, when you're starting to see little hot spots that our independent school community really needs to pay attention to, just consider it an open invite. You can come back for more pain and suffering on the pod anytime. <laughs>
4: Amazing. It's been an absolute pleasure this afternoon. So thanks, Christina, Bill, and uh, Hiram. It's been fantastic. Really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. This was great.
4: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you.
0: This has been Talking Technology with Atlas, produced by the Association of Technology Leaders in Independent Schools. For more information about Atlas and Atlas membership, please visit theatlas.org. If you enjoyed this discussion, please subscribe, leave a review, and share this podcast with your colleagues in the independent school community. Thank you for listening. This episode has been brought to you by Toddle. Atlas thanks our vendor partners for their support.